Tonight I would like to talk about bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word. Bodhi means awakening. Chitta means heart, mind. So it's the heart, mind of awakening. What is meant here by bodhicitta is the compassionate resolve or determination and motivation to keep practicing, to develop heart and mind, to complete all the virtues and beautiful inner qualities until one reaches full awakening or Buddhahood as to be of greatest benefit for beings, no matter how long this takes. That has to be added because it may take a while. It's a grand vision, a kind of a life vision or perhaps a vision over many lifetimes if you want to look at it that way. And as a little preface, I'll say, sometimes people feel that it's asking way too much of themselves. And when they hear a talk like this one, they close down in defense which is understandable, but not really necessary. It is an amazing ideal, and the idea is that it's meant to be inspiring, of course. So if you should feel pressured, please relax. We don't need to live up to this standard in the next few weeks or years. It's really all about looking at the possibility of changing our life perspective from a focus on oneself to a focus on many or all. It's a poem by Nyajul Kenrinpoche, my late Tibetan Dzogchen teacher. He says, from among all the vast divisions of the Buddha's teachings, Bodhicitta is the very quintessence. Bodhicitta is the supreme protection from what's unwholesome. Bodhicitta repels the harm of the lower or suffering realms of existence. Bodhicitta opens the supreme path of liberation. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted. Train in Bodhicitta. Don't be mistaken. Don't be mistaken. Train in bodhicitta. And Geshe Rapten, my first Tibetan teacher, with whom I've spent many years, often stated, this awakening mind, this bodhicitta, is not an ordinary mental attitude, but one of firm determination to attain Buddhahood in order to serve the needs of beings. He said, it's not enough for such a state of mind to arise once or twice to be called an awakening mind or bodhicitta. It must be deeply ingrained as a result of repeated experiences of such an attitude. When, by virtue of continuous effort, this attitude of mind becomes familiar and arises spontaneously, then such a mind is the actual awakening mind, the actual bodhicitta. And the person who has developed it becomes a true bodhisattva. 
There are many ways and means to develop our heart and mind in this direction. The direction of one of the most beautiful inner attitude possible for human beings. Presenting some of these ways and means, I can't do it from some great personal realization in this respect, obviously. I simply do it because to me it has been one of the most inspiring and elevating aspects of the teachings of Dharma that I received throughout the past 40 years. And I'll focus on some of the traditional reflections that I find useful for Westerners, particularly the more skeptical ones among us. And I'll leave out the more orthodox Buddhist ones that presuppose the belief in rebirth. It's reflections or it's a vision which may help to create the supporting mood or a supporting atmosphere for our metta practice here. It might be most helpful to begin with the contemplation on the shortcomings of self-cherishing. Shortcomings means Nachteile and the advantages, the Vorteile of altruism or of cherishing others. And since these are key words, self-cherishing means something like eigennutz, self-centriertheit, not egoismus. Cherishing others, maybe Nächstenliebe, or altruism, caring compassion for others or for everyone. And I can only say it in English and German. I'm sorry, I can't say it in all the other languages that are around here. So first the shortcomings of self-cherishing. This self-cherishing mobilizes the unwholesome inequalities in always trying to get what I desire and to avoid what I dislike. In that way, desire, greed, hatred, anger, all that, they're constantly generated and reinforced. And this causes ourselves to suffer, rather than to experience the happiness we have been hoping for. When we react with desire or greed or hatred or anger, it's because we want to be happy. And we should be happy. But it's the wrong means. It's a reaction that exactly causes the opposite of what we want. This is why it's called a disease. This is the, the basic tragic misperception in life. In the hope to make ourselves happy, we do exactly that which eventually makes us suffer. That's why Shantideva asks, If all the harm, the fears and the suffering in the world arise from self-cherishing, what need do I have for this kind of evil spirit?
how this self-cherishing creates suffering for us and for others around us, of course, we can see from the following illustrations. It's compared not just to a disease, but to a chronic disease with additional painful side effects. Self-cherishing always comes up. It comes up quite naturally. It comes up quite automatically, chronically. We don't need to first think about it and think, okay, self-cherishing probably would be the best attitude here and then generate it. It's like a chronic disease. It's around. It's obviously or potentially present. Comes up in most situations, but never truly gets us what we really wish for. It may get us the thing we wish for, but not necessarily the happiness which we want. It causes suffering and it creates a lot of extra trouble. When people don't like us so much, they act more selfish towards us. All kinds of side effects. It keeps us from realizing our objectives, our goals of liberation, of awakening, of fulfillment. It keeps us away from even moving in that direction. It's the root of all difficulties, of suffering and pain, because it causes us to create unwholesome actions and unwholesome inner attitudes, which result in painful effects now and also in the future. It generates the exact opposite of what we wish for in life and also creates future painful experiences for us because we train this habit, this tendency in us. One wonders why we manage over and over again to quite spontaneously adopt this most unhelpful attitude of all. And we could make the following aspiration or inclination of heart. May I be blessed to be able to abandon the great demon of self-cherishing by holding it as a harmful object and by seeing this chronic disease which grasps oneself most dearly as the cause of all undesired suffering. Of course, this needs to be thought through because it's what Stephen Batchelor calls counterintuitive. It's unnatural. Self-cherishing is automatic, is natural. This comes from our belief that it'll serve us in the best way possible. Then we can look at the ways altruism the cherishing of others actually creates the happiness we're looking for, for ourselves and for others. And one point maybe here. Hearing on the faults of self-cherishing, we may get a little worried that, you know, they're trying to take away something from us. You know, not acting out of self-cherishing 
we may be frustrated, we may be deprived. But that's not the case. Happiness is available plentifully, abundantly. But we need to be clear on how it can be attained and on how or through what it is being destroyed. So next we can investigate the advantages of altruism, of cherishing others, or cherishing all beings. When we care for the well-being of many, powerful, wholesome inequalities are generated in us, such as generosity, such as open-heartedness, kindness, compassion. And because of this, we will experience happiness. Happiness in the very moment because those states of mind or heart feel good. As much as in the future because we strengthen the wholesome tendencies within. In other words, we create positive karma. And it creates happiness for those around us too. It's what Sokya Rinpoche calls the logic of compassion. Doing to others what we would like them to do to ourselves creates happiness. Creates exactly the happiness we so much wish to have for ourselves. How altruism and cherishing others creates happiness for ourselves and others can be seen from these following illustrations. It's compared, cherishing others, or altruism, it's compared to a wish-fulfilling jewel, ein wunsch-erfüllender Edelstein, as opposed to chronic disease. That sounds pretty good. It's called that because it has the power to ful fulfill our own deepest wishes, our wishes for happiness, for serenity, for fulfillment. It makes this happiness, this harmony and joy possible for ourselves and again for others around us. It creates powerful positive energies in and around us. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, how powerfully they affected their surroundings. Much of it still is being felt today. Our heart, our mind becomes more calm, more concentrated, what we wish for, become more gentle, more open. We'll be respected and appreciated and loved. And we create happy results for the future, positive tendencies in ourselves. Shantideva makes a point here by stating, All those who suffer in the world do so because of the craving for their own happiness. All those who are truly happy in the world are so because of their wishing all beings to be happy. What need is there to say much more? The foolish work for their personal benefit 
the Buddhas and sages work for the benefit of all. Just look at the difference between them. Perhaps then we can conclude with the aspiration. May I be blessed to be able to change from self-cherishing to altruism with the mind which distinguishes between the shortcoming of working just for myself and the Buddha's wholesome actions benefiting all. Once this is disadvantages and benefits on which we need to think over and over again. Once it's quite clear, we can go on to looking at our dependence on all others and seeing their kindness and their importance for us and for our lives. We can reflect on our complete dependence on our mother, on our parents, on teachers, on doctors, on healers. We can look at our dependence on education, on health services, on knowledge, talking, reading, writing. It's countless beings we were dependent on to learn all that, to make it all possible for us. Our dependence in terms of our food, on farmers who are plowing and planting and sowing and taking care of the crop and harvesting and all the things they do, I don't even have a clue. On farming machinery, on farming machinery factories and all the people who work in those factories and do whatever they do that I again have no clue on miners who go down into mines to get the metals to make machineries in the factories. For clothing, cotton farms depend on the manufacturing of synthetic fibers, on collars. I mean, again, you know, there's all these ways that all these collars and Clothes come about from somewhere, somehow. I don't know how. I have no clue. Beings, people who do all that. On weaving, on design, on cutting, on sewing, on lots of factory work again. On wool from sheep, on silk from silkworms, on leather from cows and calves, and even crocodiles and foxes. Countless people and animals have created, produced, contributed to just about everything we need, we own, we use, and we enjoy in life. Even our own bodies depend on others. All these beings do this through their work, through their effort, often at the cost of their life. And even with the fact that most of them, most of the time, they do it to earn their living or even because they're forced to do it, it's still us who are getting the benefit. And especially as people of the Western world, we so tremendously 
profit from the fact that the other two-thirds of humanity works and slaves away for bare-naked survival. While we, we could say, we abound, we abound in wealth. So with this, it's not to give us a bad feeling. We could misuse it for that and then just simply sort of feel guilty and then give it up because who wants to contemplate things to feel bad. But we could, um, in this way, develop a sense of appreciation for all these parts of life, for all these beings who make our existence and our well-being possible. And of course, that's the idea, appreciation. We do that rather than taking it all for granted. And in this way, we may begin to wake up to a sense of tremendous appreciation and gratefulness. And that again in itself is a wholesome and happy way of being. We may even feel like we want to repay everyone's kindness. Not that we try to weigh with each person, oh, how do I benefit from her or from him? How much should I offer back? It's much more open and generous than that. It takes a lot of awareness of life's ways and situations, not just our own. It takes a lot of reflection and contemplation to truly change our perspective. I think it would be a wonderful thing to do that again and again. Perhaps we can conclude with the aspiration. May I be blessed to generate effortless compassion, just a mother's love for her wayward child, by thinking again and again on how all these living beings have been of benefit to me. Now we can take the next step. Next step is to equalize oneself with others. We not only realize our dependency on other beings, on other beings' work, efforts, help, kindness, even their life, but we also begin to see how much we're all the same in our very basic makeup. As Shantideva says, others experience joy and suffering just as I do. That's why I want to protect them just as I protect myself. He says, our hands will protect or treat our legs and feet when they are at risk, when they are in pain or when they are wounded. Even though the hands don't feel the feet or the legs pain. Obvious, it's the same life. It supports each other wherever there is a need. And in the same way, he says, we can help protect others even though we may not directly feel their pain. It's one and the same life in both cases. 
That's how Shantideva comes to ask. When happiness is liked by me and others equally, what is so special about me that I protect myself and not the other? It's a good question. Why is it? Simply the age-old habit of self-cherishing and self-grasping and the not realizing that this attitude actually harms ourselves in the long run. Shantideva contrasts this attitude with the attitude of the bodhisattvas, of those who truly care. Since the bodhisattvas experience, experience an overflowing ocean of joy when beings are freed from suffering, what's the point of wishing for my own freedom alone? Again, perhaps when you hear this, we may think of a path of self-sacrifice, you know, where we lose somehow. It's a lot we have to give, give up and lose. But it's not that at all. It's a path of great joy. As Shantideva points out, he says, they experience an overflowing ocean of joy. He likes this grandiose picture. So. Eighth century India. But even a little overflowing joy is quite good, isn't it? <laughs> quite helpful in transforming our the following practices and reflections that are suggested. And just like with the previous reflections on, on self-cherishing and altruism, these reflections here they're all about facts that are very obvious. The point here is that we have to think them through over and over again and apply them in real life situations. They're so obvious that we think, of course, and then we forget it, we drop it. So what you do here is, first we look at ourselves. What are our, what are my deepest wishes? Our greatest hopes, driving force for all our actions. We don't want to suffer emotionally or from pain or from disease. We don't want to go hungry or suffer from thirst or heat or cold, not even a little. We don't want to be depressed or disappointed or frustrated or being treated without respect or care. We'd rather be healthy, vital, and happy. And we love it to be honored, to be respected, loved by others. We love physical bliss. We love good food, nice clothes, nice place to live. We like ease. We like joy and deep peace. And a little more of all this is always welcome, isn't it? So... Let's look at others now. What are their deepest wishes, their greatest hopes, their driving force for all their endeavors? Of course, it's obvious. Surprise, surprise. They don't want to suffer emotionally or from pain or disease. They don't want to go hungry 
suffer from thirst, heat or cold. Not even a little. They don't want to be depressed or disappointed or frustrated or being treated without respect or care. They'd rather be healthy, vital and happy. And they like to be honored and respected and loved by everyone. They love physical bliss, good food, nice clothes and a nice place to live. They like ease, joy and deep peace. And a little more of all this is always welcome, isn't it? Going through all those points is not the same as just saying, sure, we all wish the same. That's the point, of course, we all wish the same. And we already know that, but the point here is to over and over reflect exactly in that way. Remembering what I would like and remembering, oh, maybe the others like that too. Not just maybe. Maybe not in specific things, but in general things like the ones I listed. Interesting. What is certainly a great help and a wonderful support here is the practice of the four Brahma-viharas of kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic or appreciative joy and equanimity. By connecting to beings with metta, with kindness, and practicing it with all kinds of beings, from the benefactor, the loved ones, all the way to the difficult ones, from oneself to all beings in the universe, one starts to feel that sense of oneness, more of a sense of all being the same in respect to not wanting to suffer but wishing for happiness. Then connecting again with all of them, or all of us actually, with karuna, with compassion, feeling their pain, feeling their suffering. Then connecting with all of us, with murita, with appreciation, feeling our joy and happiness. And then connecting again with everyone, with equanimity. And it really creates that sense of equality. All beings being equally close to our heart. Not all beings being equally distant to our heart, but all beings equally close to our heart. So we conclude with the aspiration. May I be blessed to help generate happiness in others. For there is no difference between myself and them in never getting enough pleasure and happiness and not wanting even the slightest suffering. From here, it's not such a big step to what is called exchanging oneself with others. This basic, actually, 
quite radical reversal of our habitual thinking. It's expressed by Shantideva. I say twice, it's a little tricky. If I give, or if I give things away, what shall I enjoy? Such concern for, one, for oneself is miserly. If I eat it or use it up myself, what can I give? Such generosity is divine. It's quite radical, isn't it? If I give, if, if I have the thought, if I'm generous and give things away, oh, what's left for myself? You know, the what about me, what about me thing. And he says, such concern for oneself is miserly. And he turns it around. If there's the thought, if I use the things or eat the things up myself, then what can I give? That's the reversed concern. He says, such generosity is divine. Yet, of course, if we pretend or force ourselves to be that way, to think that way, but it's not founded in real understanding of where genuine benefit lies, we may end up frustrated. We may end up feeling deprived. So exchanging oneself with others needs to be based on the previous reflections and meditations and realizations. Then it can be very powerful quite deeply liberating. We could put ourselves in the place of one country, feeling threatened by terrorist attacks, maybe countrymen, even relatives killed. We could put ourselves in the place of the other side, feeling oppressed, feeling mistreated, with countrymen or even relatives imprisoned or killed. Just dare to make that step on the other side of the border. We may be convinced that nuclear power plants are endangering our health, our lives, and take action against them. And still, we can put ourselves into the position of the director, or the workers there, or their families, who all fight for their jobs, for their survival. We may still engage in activism, but our inner, our emotional attitude may shift from one of fear or anger to one of wisdom and compassion for all, for everyone concerned. We can put ourselves in the place of the slug who is working really hard approaching our garden salads or our lettuces. It looks like hard work, you know, they have no legs. On this rough kind of earth, it's tough, I imagine. Or put ourselves in the place of the mosquito on our arm. I mean, you know, you sort of... Put ourselves into the place of the partner whom we are angry with, whom we perhaps treat with unkind words or whatever. Even the thought sometimes that one could do it already changes something. Even 
to remember the possibility of looking at how it could feel from the other side. That's something. Even if we don't really do it. But doing it sometimes. Having developed a sense of equality and connectedness with others through the previous contemplations, we've now crossed the apparent, not the real, but the apparent dividing line between self and others. And again, we need to have quite a solid sense of self-esteem. We do need to be grounded in in self-respect. Otherwise, it's like somehow putting ourselves down in a way that we already do and that is very unhealthy for ourselves. It's not putting ourselves down. It's experiencing in a deeper and deeper way the connectedness and that's a completely different thing. The oneness. Just not because we should be concerned for beings, but because we truly understand the disadvantages of not being concerned for them, of self-centeredness, and the liberating aspects and the joy of altruism. It's out of that understanding that we begin to care more and more for others. And in that, we do genuinely care for ourselves too, in a wise way. It's out of this wise understanding and out of a deep compassion that we can aspire to the following. I understand that self-cherishing leads to suffering and that the way of the Buddha is to cherish others more than anything. May I be blessed to be able to take upon myself all the suffering, the unwholesome karma and the obstacles of all sentient beings and to give them all my happiness and virtues. One of my teachers from earlier on, Dinka Kensi Rinpoche, a famous Tibetan Lama, a teacher of the Dalai Lama also. And so touching and impressing always. He spent two decades in retreat. If you think two weeks is long. I think they actually pulled him out and said enough now. And ever since, he's been teaching, helping, and being available for everybody who would come, who would appear, who would want anything. From early morning, from the moment he had done his morning practices through till late night, he was literally sitting there available for everything. It's like if the four of us would sit here from morning six o'clock till evening at 11, available for anyone and anything anyone would might want from us. Uh, you could bring us some food and we'd eat it and we'd be here. I mean, this is literally how he lived his life. And people would come and ask him profound questions on, on the nature of mind and on emptiness and things. And people would come and they had the sweater business. Tibetans have sweater business. They go down to the plains in winter and they sell sweaters to 
Indians to foreigners. And they would ask, you know, where should I go? Should I go to Delhi or should I go to Benares? And he would sort of do this thing, you know, and he would say, okay, you should go to Benares. There's no difference in what people needed, whatever he had or knew he would share. You know, people would come with kids and he would bless them and, you know, chutzala, I don't know in English, <laughs> pat them. And he would, again, you know, be very serious when somebody was in suffering and support them. Amazing. This kind of quality, this kind of uh, attitude we don't have and we may not have the next few days. But it's an inspiring, inspiring direction of developing the heart and mind. The next step is wish to be there for all others. Leads to the practice of Tonglen, taking and giving. It's actually giving and taking. It's the meditative exercise of imagining taking others' suffering on ourselves and offering our happiness to them. It's one of the jewels among the many kinds of meditation in the Tibetan tradition. And it can be done in connection with the breath, the in-breath that one imagines taking on oneself other suffering and with breathing out that one gives them one's happiness, one's joys, one's possessions. You could do it on different levels. One gives them all kind of uh, emotional happiness and well-being and, and it gives them all material uh, things one can imagine. One of my Tibetan teachers who, who was uh, living near Zurich, his Swiss, he was learning Swiss German, but he wasn't so good, and he explained, du, du gibst all Migro shop, Migro, ganze Migro laden. You give whatever there is, you know, Migros, the supermarkets, and you sort of give everything they have. And you give the wisdom you have and your innate wisdom you may not have discovered yet oh, and take on their suffering. Since it's quite a bit different from what we do here, I'll not go more into it. The Tonglen, retreat, Tonglen retreats here at our center if someone is interested. What starts to arise in one in oneself at that point, as one proceeds in this training, is what is known as the special wish of Laksam. One realizes that all meditations, metta, karuna, tonglen, are not yet enough to liberate beings from their suffering. It helps, it motivates us to act in skillful and compassionate ways, but the wisdom is maybe not the one uh, that is perfect enough as the one of a Buddha would be. So one thinks that in order to be of real great help for others, one needs to attain the optimal realization, which is the awakening of a Buddha. And this recognition from one's deepest hearts is, is called the special wish, Laksam. And from this wish, Bodhicitta is born. May we reach the full awakening of a Buddha 
in order to be of greatest help to all beings. It's this deep shift of attitude, this profound resolve and determination, which then motivates all of one's actions. That's what's meant by bodhicitta, or the motivation of a bodhisattva, or a bodhisattvi. Though it's born from compassion, and compassion is its life force, it's even more radical. It's the ultimate consequence of compassion. Shantideva says of bodhicitta, this is the supreme medicine curing the sickness of the world. It's a tree that shelters all the weary beings staggering along the road of conditioned existence. It's an extraordinary jewel of heart and mind and its birth in beings is an unequaled miracle. I think it's from this motivation that the vow of the bodhisattvas arises. Very famous statement. Beings are numberless. We will help to liberate them all. Inner conflicts are endless. We'll overcome them all. Insights are numberless. We'll realize them all. The Buddha's way is vast, is great. We'll walk it to its end. Beings are numberless. We'll help to liberate them all. Inner conflicts are endless. Kilesa are endless. We'll overcome them all. Insights are numberless. We'll realize them all. The Buddha's way is vast. We'll walk it to its end. Compassion, enthusiasm and devotion towards the welfare of beings at that point have become an overwhelming force, an overwhelming power on the way to the healing and the liberation of all of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.